0: I'm Scott, and welcome to Episode 5 of Child in Time, a podcast about growing up in the 60s. I've called this one Fever, and we're going to be talking about the many and varied illnesses and diseases that were part of life for children and adults in the 1960s. The big four childhood diseases for us were measles, German measles, mumps and chickenpox. I caught all four. No, not all at once, but over about a three or four year period. My three brothers likewise caught the full set. We would catch each one from each other in our little house. You'd be off school for a month or so, and uh, then away you went again. It was all very common, and at the time, it was really no big deal. We had no awareness of the instances of serious consequences that were experienced by a small number of individuals as a result of these illnesses. Now, a measles outbreak is a big news story. So what happened when you got these things? Measles? We got a rash. Spots. German measles, the same, but the rash was milder. The mumps made your face swell. One side, then the other a bit later. It was a bit like looking at your face in a funhouse mirror. Chickenpox manifested as sores all over your body. And mum had to dab each and every sore with calamine lotion. Now, I don't recall feeling sick with any of these illnesses at all. But I know I didn't like the isolation of not being able to play with anyone. A month off school is a long time for a child of, say, eight or nine. And if you missed those all-important lessons in, say, multiplication. You had some catching up to do, son. I remember often mums would come to the class room and, and say to the teacher that their little son or daughter had caught, insert name of childhood illness, here. And could you please give me some homework for him or her to do at home while they recover? I thought to myself, hmm, next disease I get, I'll ask mum to do that for me too, and she did. What a bad idea. I'm isolating in my bedroom, my own bedroom, completely mine, except for my three younger brothers who share it with me. I've got lots of toys and I've got some comics. I didn't want to do any schoolwork. Polio was still a thing, and the last outbreak was in the early 60s. Polio is highly contagious, and although most people who got it showed no symptoms, in 3% of those who caught it, the virus entered the nervous system, and in a third of those people, what followed was severe muscle weakness or paralytic polio. The victims were often children. The paralysis and disability were often lifelong, and there are countless thousands of people in Australia now that live with the effects of polio. We were given the then-recently-developed vaccine in infant school. It wasn't declared pretty much gone altogether until the year 2000. As a kid, I remember seeing other kids sometimes with calipers on their legs as a result of polio when we were out and about. Good riddance to polio. One vaccination we got in the school hall was given to the entire class from a single big old metal syringe. You'd walk up, they'd inject you with a few mils, and then on to the next kid. That's how they did it then. Tuberculosis, or as it's commonly referred to, TB, was, at the turn of the century the leading cause of death for Australian females and the second most for males. But by the 60s, there were still cases about of this lung disease that essentially, and without treatment, solidified lungs until respiratory failure ensued. When we were tested in the first few years of school, I was singled out to go into the city with mum to have an x-ray of my chest to establish that I did not have TB. Thankfully I didn't. But mum said that she suspects that a woman she knew gave me a cuddle or patted me on the head or something and that that woman had TB. So I'd been exposed. Anyway, that's the story I was told. For minor injuries, the tried and true home remedies were often called into play. A bump on the head, mum would put some butter on that and it would take down the swelling and all would be well. I actually researched this and I can tell you that my findings reveal that the effect of butter on a swelling or contusion is... zero. Another one was olive oil in the ear for an earache. Now that may help loosen earwax, but if there is infection in the ear, Well, the olive oil is on a par with the butter. Then there was wrapping lettuce around a swollen ankle. Oh, mum, it's a kitchen, not a pharmacy. But a mother's love could cure many things. When free to roam around the neighbourhood, a fun thing to do was find discarded fibro-sheeting and snap it in two. This would make a... Very pleasingly loud bang, and was, I suppose, a bit of a precursor to bubble wrap. You're ahead of me on this, aren't you? Yep. What was in that fibro-sheeting? Asbestos. There was a lot of asbestos about. Many places built in the 60s, if demolished now, of course, have to be, have, have specialised people dressed like spacemen to dispose of it all safely. Fortunately, I know of no instances of anyone I knew suffering asbestos-related illness as a result of childhood exposure, and I hope that's the case for everyone. Next we have the APC powders. They were around from the nineteen thirties to the nineteen seventies, and in the sixties they were really in their prime. Marketed as Vincent's or Bex powders, they contained the three ingredients: aspirin, phenacetin, and caffeine. APC. The phrase "a cup of tea, a Bex, and a good lie down" was the name of a popular stage review, and it became part of the vernacular. Unfortunately, people became addicted to the powders, and in the 60s it was discovered that finacetin was carcinogenic and caused analgesic neuropathy. When finacetin was banned in 1979, there was a significant reduction in the incidence of renal cancer, particularly in women. On a few occasions, when I had a temperature or something, and Mum didn't have anything else to hand, she would open one of the papers. Sachets of Vincent's powder and get me to take about half the contents. Up to that time, it was the most bitter thing I'd ever tasted, and I thought, why do people take this stuff? My grandfather died quite young, in about 1965 or six, I think. He never smoked or drank, but after he had a stroke, He did not have the kidney function to support life. After he died, it was discovered the waste paper bin next to his desk was crammed full to the brim with countless hundreds of empty APC sachets. My parents didn't smoke, and despite being bombarded with cigarette advertisements on TV, on billboards and in print suggesting the contrary, they told it it was a very, very bad thing to do, and we must never smoke. I thought, well, this must be really good. And at the first viable opportunity, I was down behind the wash shed at school, having that first illicit puff from a smoke that some boy had stolen from his parents' pack. After a couple of my first schoolboy excursions into the ultra cool world of sophistication and worldliness, puffing on a cigarette, one of our clandestine little group pointed out that Scotty only puffs. He doesn't do the drawback. This was unfortunately the case. I didn't inhale. I just puffed. I said, okay, sure. I'll do the drawback. I inhaled a deep lungful. I'll show them, I thought. Then what immediately followed was technically mild nicotine poisoning. Suddenly I felt nauseous and dizzy. My friends laughed as I lurched towards the wall of the shed. Oh, this wasn't like the ad said. I wasn't in some exotic location surrounded by beautiful women. I didn't have anything witty to say. And I was the antithesis of suave. You know, I never smoked again. Well, un- until the following day, that is. In 1964, 58% of adult males smoked and 28% of females. The latest figures I could find from uh, 2019 were 14% of males and 12% of females still smoke. That's a huge difference. When we were kids, people smoked in offices, shops, buses, trains, cabs, restaurants. Some of my friends' homes smelt like, well, they smelt like a house sized ashtray, as did their family cars. As a child possessing the most delicate thing in human physiology, that is the developing lungs of a child, mum and or dad, were not giving you lung cancer as you spent all that time at home or in the car doing your passive smoking. But statistically, you had a much greater chance of developing some kind of respiratory illness and an increased risk of asthma. Children could buy cigarettes too. One teacher gave me 40 cents and sent me to the corner shop a few times to buy him 20 Peter Stuyvesant. No problem. I was eight years old after all. 40 cents in 1964 equates to about $7 now. A pack of 20 in 2022 is apparently 50 bucks. Cigarette smoking was the number one preventable cause of illness and death in the 60s, and for decades to come. But nowadays, obesity is running a very close second. I I've mentioned in a previous episode that we grew up without sunscreen. And uh, the no-hat-no-play rules that were designed to prevent sun damage and skin cancer didn't exist for us at all. Some people have told me they would coat themselves in coconut oil and roast themselves like a big human chip in order to get as brown as possible. I always got sunburned when we went to the beach. Last time I saw my dermatologist, I opined that at the current rate of his cutting suspect bits of my skin off by... 2045, I'll look like one of those skinless mannequins you see in museums. Australia has just about the highest rate of skin cancer in the world. And we can't do much about the damage done to our skin when we were kids. There was sunscreen starting to become available, but I had no experience of it. And the SPF factor was only about 4 unlike the 50% and up we get now. The ozone layer is very thin over Australia. Plus, a great many of us in the 60s work occasion with a British heritage. Our skin was not designed for the harsh Australian sun. Now, I'm a direct descendant of a convict who was transported to Australia on the Third Fleet, he was sentenced to seven years for for riding his horse too fast through a school zone or stealing a loaf of bread or, look, the truth is we just don't know. Often adults would talk about an aunt or friend or someone in their circle and say that, that unfortunate individual had had a turn. An extensive search of the finest medical authority of literature has failed to shed any light on what a turn is or was. But the tone used left me in no doubt that having a turn was a bad thing. I would just listen to this, but I thought, why doesn't my aunt, whoever it is, just go to the chemist? And say so you're having turns. And could you have some turn medicine? When women gave birth, and my mother was quite good at it, having four boys in a five-year period, the mums were required to stay in hospital for about a week, unlike now. Also, I know from personal experience that some hospitals forbade children to visit My youngest brother broke his femur and was in hospital for three months. We were only allowed to see him through a window from outside his ward. I did get in the hospital once, though. I'd run into the back of a friend's head while we were playing a running game, and my nose had bled spectacularly. Dad took me to the emergency department to see if my nose was broken. The friendly doctor who examined my nose in his little room assured us that it wasn't broken, though my nose would never be quite as nature intended. It was a brief examination. How brief? Well, the doctor was still smoking the same cigarette when we left as he was when we went in. Thanks for listening. If you like it, please tell one other person, spread the word. And look, I've been really, really knocked out with the incredible support I've had since I started this just five weeks ago. I love your comments. Um some people have contacted me already. They want a part two of this episode or making suggestions. That's great. Uh just go to dub 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 child in time dot life not Childinlife.com. I couldn't afford that. There's a link in the notes, and uh, we'll talk soon. Bye.